The following recording is a production of Kicking Out at Two in conjunction with the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network and is intended for private use only. For more information, head on over to facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two or our Twitter handle at kicking out two, along with searching Retromania with a W on any and all podcast platforms available to listen to archive shows such as this and all the great content of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. Evergreen content at your fingertips anytime at your listening pleasure. And with that being said, we thank you for listening and hope you enjoy the show. We got ourselves a Nitro Spring Bake recap here on this episode of Kicking Out of Two. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, flying solo this episode here as we're going to recap for you the March 16th, 1998 episode of WCW Monday Nitro that emanated from Club La Vila in Panama City Beach for spring break. Those were always some fun episodes to watch. And I thought it'd be kind of cool during this time period, spring break, that is, for all you college kids that are listening, uh, to, to, to recap that episode for you and, and, and detail what it was like for uh, WCW and for the wrestling world to witness a live wrestling show in the middle of a pool. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that shortly. But, um, yeah, uh, before we do all that, um, Retromania, hit us up there. You can find this show as well as last week's show, which we called an audible for. Originally, last week's show was supposed to be this week, and this week's show was supposed to be last week, but we flip-flopped them because the Nitro show took place on the 16th of March, which is 25 years to today. So I thought, why don't we just do it on the anniversary? Um, and, yeah, thanks for tuning in, checking out. Love the positive feedback I've been getting on Dennis J. Levy's Worst WrestleMania Nightmare. Full disclosure here, just want to put it out there. Um, this had all the makings to be a simple roulette-style watch-along where we were going to take WrestleMania matches from the respective years of 88, 93, 98, 2003, and 2008, and we were going to let the, the randomizer wheel choose. But for those of you that listened last week, Dennis chose his poison, and he allowed me to make the choice as to how the wheel was going to be spun. And instead of the first match being the one that we watched that it lands on, we chose the last match, and it just so happened to be Bret Hart. Yokozuna, WrestleMania 9, WWF Championship. Yep, the one where Hulk, Hulka, Hulkamania himself, the Hulk lives. Yep, Regis Philbin, WrestleMania 7 reference, where he jumped in and got involved and ended up leaving Caesars Palace in Las Vegas with the WWF Championship. We talked all kinds of things uh, when it comes to the worst of the worst in WrestleMania history. Worst main events, worst WrestleManias, why this match had no business taking place in the first place. Dennis gets into it. Um... And yeah, so check that out over in the archives, Retromania with a W when you search it on any podcast platform available, as well as uh, uh, Podbean, our home, where you can find this show, Marking Out the Days, uh, which by the way, coming up in the archives, in the streams, if you will, Kobe and myself will be recording an episode of Marking Out the Days, season three, Raw is 30, where we watch, usually we watch one episode from each month, it's a monthly series, one episode from each month commemorating the 30th year anniversary from the very first year of Monday Night Raw. Last month, we watched Hulk Hogan's return to the WWF in 1993. month before that, we watched the inaugural episode. But for the month of March, we are going to watch the March to WrestleMania 9 special, which took place in place of Monday Night Raw on March the 29th, 1993. So that's going to be dropping at the end of the month as we get closer to WrestleMania season. And speaking of WrestleMania season, as always, I pump out extra content for WrestleMania season. We, we, we got, you know, the Dennis J. Levy's worst nightmare last week. This week, we're taking a break from WrestleMania season, recapping that Nitro. I'll get to that shortly. But next week, we're going to do over WrestleMania 9. That's right. 
We're going to make WrestleMania 9 watchable. Kobe joined me from Retromania, and he created his own little booking scenarios and how to get to WrestleMania 9, and I did the same thing as well. Um, so we had a little fun with that, and hopefully you guys have fun listening to it as well. Maybe WrestleMania 9, either of our versions, would be more watchable than what we saw in 1993. So check that out next week. And then the following week, as we get into rest, the, 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 the home stretch of WrestleMania season, Justin, my brother Justin, uh, comes, on, comes on the show and... He'll contribute his thoughts and analysis on some of the WrestleMania what-ifs and urban legends in WrestleMania history. Like, for instance, the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase was rumored to be leaving WrestleMania 4 as the WWF champion. But, as we saw, that wasn't the case. It was Randy Savage. What if Ted DiBiase ended up becoming WWF champion at that WrestleMania. What does the WWF look like heading into the summer of 1988? We talk about that. We talk about a possible Hollywood Hogan invasion at WrestleMania 14. That and so much more on that episode. And then WrestleMania weekend, we're going to do a bonus show. We're going to have ourselves a a good old-fashioned watch-along. This time, it's going to be dealer's choice, okay? We're going to let Dennis decide because Dennis let me pick the poison. But now I'm going to give him a do-over. A redo, if you will. So we're going to redo the roulette watch style, watch party style, if you will. I'm just going to let him choose. So the remaining matches that were on that roulette wheel, like Randy Savage and Ted DiBiase, like Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels, like Hollywood Hogan and Mr. McMahon, like Edge and The Undertaker, like, um, yeah, those, those matches and a few others. Dennis is going to get to choose which one of those matches he wants to watch with all of you on the Peacock as a bonus show heading into WrestleMania weekend. So that's going to be a lot of fun as we get into the WrestleMania season uh, schedule of shows here on Kicking Out at 2. Uh, but before we uh, we get into our Nitro recap from Spring Break 1998, I thought it'd be fitting that we go over some of the, the events that had led up to this point. Now, we've been covering some of Raw from 1998, and we haven't really covered a lot of Nitro from 1998. And... I thought I would just kind of give you guys a brief rundown as to what the landscape of WCW looked like before this Nitro Spring Break show on March the 16th, 1998. We would end 1997 regarding the controversy surrounding Hulk Hogan's sting from Starcade 1998 or 1997, excuse me, heading into 98. That seemed to be the, the nucleus and the focal point of WCW programming. Um, which culminated on an episode of Thunder, the debut episode of Thunder, where J.J. Dillon, representing the WCW Championship Committee, had decided that the title would be held up and they would they would declare um, what would take place with the championship at a later date. That was a big f- talking point of that debut episode of Thunder. Um, also, um, starting off 1998, because of the controversy surrounding the Starcade finish, this would also lead to the NWO basically being ripped in half. Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Kevin Nash, all at odds with each other. Um, We're starting to see cracks within the foundation of the NWO following this major match that took place at Starcade. Other noticeable um, storylines that had uh, transpired on WCW programming over the course of January and February saw Chris Jericho had turned heel after going through such a, a devastating losing streak, and he targeted the cruiserweights in WCW by defeating Rey Mysterio at Sold Out 1998, winning the Cruiserweight Championship. Not long after that, he would then defend that title against another Mexican luchador in Juventud Guerrera, defeating him at Super Brawl in a mask versus title match, where we would see Juventud Guerrera remove his mask at that pay-per-view. Oh, here's another good one. 
Well, it wasn't very good, but it's notable. I have to mention it. Dusty Rhodes would help Scott Hall defeat Larry Zbysko at Sold Out and join the NWL. That, to me, was always a head-scratcher. Never really understood Dusty Rhodes and the reason why they put him in the NWL. Um, back in 98, the only reason I figured that he was in the NWO was because they wanted... Because the rumor was out there is that they were going to split the shows. One was going to be a WCW show and one was going to be an NWO show. And they needed somebody on color commentary to represent the NWO, that being Dusty Rhodes. Um, but that really just kind of went nowhere. Dusty was just the guy that just had an NWO shirt on. It was it was pointless. Um, 98 also kicked off with Bret Hart and Ric Flair starting their rivalry with Bret Hart defeating Ric Flair. It sold out. And it would seem that um, over the course of the next few weeks... Here and there, Brett and Ric Flair, following the sold-out match, would then team up to fight off the NWO from time to time. Now, I always thought that after Bret Hart's victory, or I'm sorry, Bret Hart's involvement in Sting's victory at Starcade, that Bret Hart was going to be targeted by the NWO. But it kind of seems like they, they put Bret off to the side, and then they slotted Ric Flair in that position. And as much as it was good to see Bret and Flair go at it in 98, I just thought it was kind of pointless that they, they could have saved that for a later date. Because I thought Brett would have been a priority in the storyline within the NWO. Um, also during this time period, we would see Booker T rise in the singles ranks as a television champion. As he ended 97, defeating Disco Inferno um, on that the, the, the Nitro following Starcade, And he would rise up the ranks having some badass matches with guys like Rick Martell, uh, Perry Saturn, uh, which he defended the title against both of them in consecutive matches at Super Brawl. Great matches. Um, Goldberg is beginning his hot streak. He's really starting to catch on with the audience during this time period. I noticed on some of these Nitros and Thunders. Um, he got a huge pop when he defeated Brad Armstrong at Super Brawl in February of 98. And we would just con continue to see the rise of Goldberg. Um, Diamond Dallas Page, another one that was really standing out as a fighting United States champion. Began a rivalry with Chris Benoit, which then eventually would morph into a rivalry with Raven as well. And all three would be fighting over the United States Championship with DDP coming out the victor in their triple threat uh, match at Uncensored in March. Actually, the night before this Nitro, I should say. Um, there's trouble with the Steiner brothers, which led to Scott Steiner turning on his brother Rick and joining the NWO, which then would morph into the Big Papa Pump persona. Um... As a kid, I was always a big Steiner guy. Love the Steiner brothers, still am. They're in my Mount Rushmore of tag teams, greatest of all time. And it was tough to see them split up. But once Scott went single, I thought, all right, there's, this is cool. And I, I, I warmed up to the idea. They didn't really do much of Rick, which is unfortunate because he was talented in his own right. But um, the, the, the morphing of Big Papa Pump, I thought, uh, was, was, was pretty cool at that time and still is to this day. Um, Kevin Nash. At the sold-out pay-per-view in January, would accidentally drop the Giant, aka, or well, well, he's now he's not Big Show anymore, but he was the Big Show in WWE, more known as the Big Show, I should say. Um, anyhow, uh, accidentally drops him on his neck, and then they begin this storyline where Kevin Nash's powerbomb has been outlawed in WCW, and every time he executes the powerbomb, he will be arrested and fined, and the running thread on these nitros with nash was he'd get involved in these matches he would have a match he'd powerbomb a guy and then hogan who's you know money bags in the nwo and the the unlimited amounts of money that he had 
uh, would bail Kevin Nash out. And Nash was just playing with someone else's money. I think that was also a sticking point within the, dis- the, the, the divide in the NWO at that time. Or at least that they were trying to create that divide. That Nash was taking advantage of Hogan and his money. Um, and, and that was a, a sticking point. I remember them kind of bringing that up on a commentary on a Nitro or a Thunder. Uh, eventually, at Super Brawl, Sting would defeat Hogan to win the vacant WCW Heavyweight Championship with help from Macho Man Randy Savage, who was at that time still a member of the NWO, but there was a division within the group, and he was on the other side of that. And I always felt, you know, back in 98, as a young Dave Rosenbluth, as a as a 15-year-old Dave Rosenbluth, I was baffled at the idea that Sting and Hogan didn't have some kind of special stipulation. And I say that because... The controversy surrounding the finish at Starcade was that there was a fast count by the referee. Even though you can clearly see on camera there was some sort of screw-up and it was a normal referee count and Bret Hart got involved, I always felt that there was some there was a need to include either a special referee or make it a cage match so there was no interference, there was a decisive winner. And it just turns out they 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 almost did the exact same finish in 97, except Savage was the guy that got involved. And Sting walked out the winner. And I was kind of scratching my head at that at 15 years old. And watching that Super Brawl back recently, I, I still am to this day. But uh, nonetheless, all was right in the world of WCW. And Sting would end up regaining the WCW championship, uh, which then would continue the turmoil within the NWO. As Macho Man was kind of the odd man out. Even though he was still wearing the NWO colors... There, there were multiple matches that he was involved in on Nitros and Thunders where he was against the NWO. You know, he wrestled Hogan a, a time or two. He tagged Sting to wrestle Hogan and Hall. There was a big six-man tag on the go-home Nitro headed into the Uncensored pay-per-view where Savage teamed with Sting and the Giant against Hogan, Hall, and Nash. Um, so it felt like... And it was weird, too, because I, I liked Savage on his own. I always felt like Savage didn't need to be in the NWO. It was cool that he was in the NWO, but he didn't need to be in the NWO. And when they started this division between Hogan and Savage and some to some degree Nash, I thought this was Macho Man's way out of the group. And so he's still coming out wearing the NWO colors, the shirt, the music, um, throwing up the two sweet sign, he, but he's opposing them. So at 15 years old, I was still a little bit confused and then... Things would become a little more clear going into the uncensored pay-per-view when Savage would wrestle Hogan and the disciple, a.k.a. Brother Brutus Beefcake, wasn't known as that at the time, but he was actually known as this like unknown... He, he didn't even have a name at first. They were like, this unknown member of the NWO is what they used to label him as until somehow they came up with a name. Anyhow, he gets involved in the match, Sting shows up to make the save, and then Randy Savage turns on Sting! And then it would be revealed why he turned on Sting. Which leads us to this episode of WCW Monday Nitro. The night following Uncensored took place. uh, Pueblo Vila, Panama City Beach, Florida. Uh, We get an overhead shot from a helicopter of the the club with the ring in the middle of the pool. Um, I always thought it was so cool. See all these college kids. Hanging out, drinking beer, watching wrestling. There's a ring in the middle of the pool. There's beautiful women. It was just like, it was. It just, it really represented this party cool atmosphere that as a teenager I wanted to be a part of. Um, so that that, that kind of really sets the tone for, for this Nitro as um, 
Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, and Larry Zbyska are on commentary, and they recap the previous night's uncensored pay-per-view with the finish to Randy Savage and Hogan, with Savage turning on Sting um, after Sting tried to save him from the NWO. And they, they, they talk about how we're going to hear from the NWO, which then leads us into our opening segment with the NWO music playing in the background. The entire group making their way out to the ring, which is in the middle of the pool. Uh, I thought this was kind of funny. Hall and Nash uh, dressed in like tropical Hawaiian shirts with flip-flops and board shorts. Um, both of them looking pr- particularly inebriated, I must say. And I have a story for that later on as we go through this recap here. Um, the rest of the group in their typical NWO gimmicks, minus Macho Man Randy Savage. He's not there at the time. Uh, Bischoff will kick things off on the microphone. He, globes, he he starts gloating about the group standing, the doubt fans had about the group splitting up, the NWO stronger than ever. Uh, and then he turns it to Hogan, who brags about Nash's victory over the Giant at Uncensored. Um, Shivani would then question the outcome of that match um, on commentary. Hogan then turns to Savage and tells him that he loves him, but that the Macho Man tested him to the limit, but that he's glad he's back within the NWO. He also, in his very like Hollywood Hogan-type way, manages to remind Savage that he beat him within an inch of his life, brother. And he announces that Bischoff had signed a match with Hogan and the Macho Man to take on Sting and Lex Luger in the main event of that Nitro on this episode. Um... He says it's Macho Man's chance to prove he's able to carry the load within the NWO. His last chance to show what he's made of. And then Bischoff, which kind of was silly to do this, but he implies that Sting is is working on a level level playing field. There's no roof to repel from. Can't hold his breath hiding in the pool. He's got nowhere to run. And that's how they pretty much end uh, the promo as the, the music plays out going to commercial break. This was a typical NWO segment. A lot of talking. Um, the only real noteworthy things that caught my attention was the fact that there's still some questions surrounding Savage's standing within the group. Even though he's advertised a team with Hogan, Hogan kind of kind of belittled Savage in that promo. So that's just something to look into as well. Um, next match here, we get Lodi making his way down to the ring as he's accompanied by the Flock. And he's set to face Goldberg. Um, Lodi, uh, Lodi sucks. Crowd chant Lodi sucks as he makes his way to the ring. With Lodi holding up a sign that says Goldberg is a meathead with the crowd chant for Goldberg. And then Goldberg comes out. He gets a great reaction. Uh, pretty standard Goldberg match uh, during this era. Um, press slam, spear, and a spear followed by a jackhammer for the win. As we see post-match, Goldberg fights off members of the flock, Sick Boy and Kidman. Saturn looks to enter the ring, but they cut to the replay from the finish of the match, which I thought was terrible timing on the on the production's part. Uh, I thought we were going to see some kind of um, some altercation between Goldberg and Saturn. Uh, but this is another show, good showcase of building Goldberg into the star he eventually became. I thought this was uh, well done. Um, our next segment here sees Mean Gene at the top of the ramp, selling the WCW hotline, speculating on a legend in the wrestling world, calling it quits. Speculating online is that it might have been Flair at that time with his issues documented with Eric Bischoff behind the scenes. Now, Gene doesn't mention that on camera, but I do remember um, after doing some research that Flair was the name that was kind of speculated uh, at this time. Uh, for those of you that are, that are unaware, Ric Flair and Eric Bischoff had a falling out in the spring of 1998 
where Bischoff claims that Ric Flair no-showed a WCW Thunder event. Flair claims that he gave WCW management enough um, notice that he wasn't going to be at that show because he was attending a wrestling tournament for his, his young son, Reed, at the time. And then it became a big, gigantic Mexican standoff where they both, both sides sued each other. And it went on for months and months until Flair would show up on the on a September edition of nineteen uh, September ninety eight edition of Nitro, and fan and real life would make its way in front of the camera, and Flair and Bischoff would begin a rivalry, and we'll get to that at a later date. But um, our next match sees Fit Finley taking on the Ultimo Dragon. Interesting contrast of styles with this matchup. Uh, Finley gets on the attack early. Uh, his Smash Mouth style really helps ground. Dragon's martial arts, lucha style at times. Um, he has the advantage throughout the majority of the match. Um, Dragon would go for the Dragon Sleeper, but Finley would get out of it. He goes for a suplex, but then Dragon counters into a Dragon Sleeper for the win. Honestly, this is a solid match. Better than I expected it to be, um, especially with the two contrasting styles. But um, definitely something that I appreciated now more than I did back then in 1998. Um our next match would see Scott Norton with Buff Bagwell in this corner taking on Gentleman Chris Adams. And this is a typical NWO match. Pretty much Scott Norton had his way with, with Chris Adams. Um, Buff would have, get some cheap shots in and some interference onto uh, Adams on the outside of the ring when the referee's distracted. Adams did get some offense in at time to time with a few drop kicks, but that didn't last very long. Um, Norton would deliver a vicious shoulder breaker that he calls the flashback for the victory. This match was okay. It was most, mostly designed to showcase Norton and the NWO. It served its purpose. Chris Adams, they weren't really doing anything with. You know, you'll, you'll notice on a lot of these Nitros and Thunders, you get some guys that had some name value elsewhere. Um, some lower level guys, I should say, that might have been bigger deals somewhere else. Like Chris Adams was a major star in the world-class territory, but in WCW, he was a pretty much an enhancement talent that had a little bit more character. Um, and a lot of these guys, they had, you know, the, the likes of Marty Jannetty was doing jobs on WCW programming. Um, <clears throat> and eventually, um, uh, Mike Enos and Wayne Bloom, formerly known as the Beverly Brothers, in the next match, they would take on the British Bulldog, Davey Boy Smith, and Jim the Anvil Nightheart. Now, Wayne Bloom, just found out recently, is the father to current WWE NXT star Von Wagner. Um, I could definitely see where Von Wagner got the genetics from. Um, this match, it was boring. Uh, nothing special. Closing moment saw Bulldog pick up the win for his team with a running power slam. Um, yeah, this was a time filler here. These three-hour night, mind you, this is a three-hour nitro. Okay. Now, when you watch it on Peacock or through other nefarious means, uh, it, it runs at like two hours and like 12, 14 minutes, something like that. Usually, there's about eighty-five on a three-hour show. There's probably about like. 85 minutes of commercial breaks, if I'm not mistaken. So um, they needed some time to fill, and this was it. WCW had a pretty deep roster, so they had enough guys to fill out a three-hour show, but not every match and story is compelling, and this is one of them that just wasn't very compelling at all. Um, the second hour of Nitro kicks off with another overhead shot of Club La Vila as Shivani promotes the, the second hour of action. We see the Nitro girls in the background dancing. That's always a plus. And the commentary team then discusses the main event of Sting and Lex Luger taking on Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan, as well as Sting's title victory over Scott Hall at the uncensored pay-per-view the night before. Um, 
The NWO music would play as we see the Macho Man Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth make their way down to the ring with Eric Bischoff. Finally, uh, we get some clarity, at least we think we do, when it comes to this Randy Savage NWO situation. Um, Bischoff starts off trying to bury the hatchet with Randy Savage while taking subtle cheap shots about Hogan beating him. Um, similar, even even kind of carbon copying Hogan's cheap shot remarks in the promo earlier uh, to Savage. Um, Savage would then snatch the mic from Bischoff and remind him that his actions at Uncensored weren't done for Hogan and Bischoff. He did it for himself and for the entire NWO. Savage then goes on to claim he's going to beat Sting for the title and then he will control the NWO. He implied that once that has happened, Hogan will be at the bottom of the pecking order as him and Miss Elizabeth leave Bischoff in the ring and the power struggle continues within the NWO. Commentating even even mentions it. There's Larry Zabisco saying there, there's still a rift between them. There's a, there's a power struggle. They're not as tight as they claim to be. And this is the reason why Savage turned on Sting. Savage wanted to be the leader of the NWO, and he wanted Hogan out of the picture, and that's why he did what he did. So he's playing nice to eventually gain control. I thought, looking back on it, back in 98, I was like, this is awful. This is awful. But now that you think about it, it's not that bad of a, it's not that bad of a theory with Savage trying to take over the group and be the leader. Um, him and Hogan have a long-standing history uh, in wrestling in general, not just WCW programming. Of course, we know the infamous Mega Powers Explode angle. It's one of the greatest angles in the history of wrestling. So there's established history between the two. Savage kind of being the, the, the antithesis to Hogan in this NWO division, this split, if you will. It looks like that they're heading towards uh, in the coming weeks and months on WCW programming. Um, next up, we'll see Raven making his way to the ring for a Ravens rules match against Chris Benoit. Raven will cut a promo before the match saying he's not happy with Benoit costing him the United States Championship at Uncensored the previous night. And he has some words for DDP. He claims that Paige deserted him and says he knows the Snake Man is watching and that he'd want it this way. Which sounds like it's a Jake the Snake Roberts reference. Uh, quote the Raven, nevermore. Commentary. Kind of jumped on that reference, referring to the snake and his history with both Paige and Raven, breaking them into the business as their mentor. Now, I've, I've never heard the story of Raven and Jake the Snake having a close association, but I did read Diamond Dallas Page's book, and it's well documented over the last 10 years, the close relationship that Paige and Jake the Snake have. Paige saved Jake's life after he had been struggling with his battles with alcohol and, and, and drugs, and Jake is, is a better man because of... Page and the healthier lifestyle that he implemented into Jake's daily routine uh, these last several years. So there's there, there's there's a, there's a history there between the two of them. I do know that at one point, I believe Jake did do some shots in ECW here and there, and there was some kind of involvement with Raven. I think it would have been pretty cool if Jake was a part of this angle as kind of like the 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 mentor watching his two students fight over, you know this United States championship, and then eventually he's got to pick a side. I think that would have been kind of cool, but I don't think Jake was available um, for bookings at that time. Um, I believe Jake was just kind of out of the business at that time doing his own thing, not in the limelight of mainstream wrestling. He might have still done appearances, but um, nothing on a grander scale like WWF or WCW at that time. Um, 
Benoit would make his way out to the ring. The action would make its way outside near some of the fans in the pavilion area, around the pool, by the entrance area. Pretty good brawl between the two. Um, there's a seating area. It's like a platform that's over the pool next to the ring uh, with the flock sitting there. Uh, this match was pretty physical. These two always brought it. I like their chemistry together. Very underrated rivalry. Um, there's a, they bring a chair into the match at some point. Uh, Raven always used chairs in his Ravens Rules matches. He would deliver a drop toe hold to Benoit with his face landing on the chair. Uh, at some point, Benoit tried to apply the cross face and he landed face first into the chair. Uh, the finish would come when Raven hits the even flow DDT for the win. And then commentary following the match points out that Raven is scheduled to face Diamond Dallas Page at Spring Stampede for the United States title via that victory. Which, I wasn't aware that this was a number one contenders match. Nothing on commentary indicated this. Uh, but this was a good match. Very physical. And it was a good way to put an end to this long-standing rivalry that had been ensuing even in the later parts of 1997 heading into uh, 1998. So I, it wasn't a bad match at all. Good TV match between these two. Uh, next up, we got Yuji Nagata against Ernest the Cat Miller. Um, I had no interest in this match. I'm not going to lie. I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I think at one point I was looking at some, I was reading an email on my phone while this match happened, but I did manage to catch the finish as the cat would deliver a spinning roundhouse kick for the win. Uh, clearly the commentators didn't have much interest in this match either as they were talking more about the NWO turmoil within, you know, between Savage and Hogan heading into the main event for the evening. Um, up next, Big Papa Pump, Scott Steiner, going one-on-one with Ray Trailer. Um, as Trailer's making his way out to the ring, the commentary would reference his time in the NWO and then eventually being excommunicated from the group and his alliance with the Steiner brothers when he left the NWO. So there's some, some, there's some substance and some background in this match, which I thought was kind of intriguing because a lot of times when you watch some of these matches on these Nitros and Thunders, it's very much... There's maybe like two or three matches, yeah, maybe four. I'll give it a little bit more credit than that. But, you know, roughly four matches on these Nitros and Thunders that have some serious story behind them, and the rest of them are just matches that are thrown together, which kind of um, reflects the state of what WCW was during that time, very chaotic and uh, uh, not very organized. Um, and that's been well documented in just about every publication there's books on it there's documentaries on it on on peacock you can find it all there um this match saw the big high spot where ray trailer clothesline scott steiner over the railing onto the outside and into the pool which got a pretty big pop um trailer would then meet steiner on the flocks platform and pick him up and send him back into the ring the finish comes and the referee's distracted with Scott Steiner as Ray goes up top. Buff arrives and trips him up. Steiner would then take an advantage with a Frankensteiner followed by a Steiner recliner for the win. Um, this match seemed to pick up after the commercial break, I will say. And I kind of wished it went a little longer because I felt like it was rushed. I felt like I was just starting to get into it and then just like that, it ended. So, um, But yeah, go check it out. Pretty fun little spot. Boss man's clothesline Steiner over the railing into the pool. Um, I always pop for spots like that, especially in the setting with a pool and everything. It was kind of fun. Um, we get the commentary 
team recapping the Kevin Nash giant match from Uncensored with still photos. They also recap the turmoil that's still going on within the NWO. This is a constant thread that's the focal point of WCW storylines, especially this episode of Nitro. Um, I, I will say there's consistency there. And I will say that based on some of the storylines that I had led with on this recording that had transpired in January and February that led up to this episode of Nitro in the month of March of 98, I will say people, you know, re- history is written by the winners. And WWE has done a good job of pointing out the 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 flaws and the mistakes that WCW made during the war. But there's one thing I will say that, and maybe this, maybe I'm in the minority here, but you know, I watched a lot of Raw in 1998. I, I, I mean, 1998, I did a lot of channel flopping, and Raw had the more compelling programming because they were they were they were under a new direction. It was a little bit more attitude per se. And so, but I still kept a hold of Nitro and Thunder. I watched a lot of wrestling as a teenager. And I will say WCW even though, you know, WWF was red hot, they had the Mike Tyson angle heading into WrestleMania that year with Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. They were really building their talent, Undertaker and Kane, The Rock was coming to his own, Sable was becoming popular, The New Age Outlaws, Ken Shamrock. I mean, they had they had depth on the talent chart and they were making their strides and they were marching to the top of the wrestling mountain. But WCW was giving them a good fight. And even though most fans out there will say, oh, well, they didn't create new stars and, you know, it was the, 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 uh, the top of the, the storylines involved Hogan and the NWO. And, but it was still good stuff. It was still compelling, at least in my opinion. Now, at some point, yes, they would have had to have hit that fork in the road, and they, and they should have went a different direction, and they didn't, okay? They kind of went to the well one too many times, but during this period, I didn't feel that, you know? Most of the internet wrestling basement dwellers out there will will, will, will claim that, you know, the Booker T's and the Chris Benoit's and the Chris Jericho's were held back, and there might be some truth to that, but at the same time, they were still also a vital part of the programming. They weren't the main event, but they were still on TV weekly being featured. It wasn't like Chris Benoit was sitting in catering or Booker T was sitting in catering or even Jericho. Those guys were, were vital parts of the program. They just weren't the top storyline at that time. And rightfully so. They didn't deserve to be. Not saying they didn't work hard, but people were paying to see the NWO and how that whole story was unfolding. And now this split in the group. It was still good TV. Do I think that they might have jumped the shark? With splitting the group up and making two NWOs? To some degree, yes. But that's another topic for another day. But I do want to say that WCW was really putting out some really good stuff. Even in early parts of 1998 when the WWF was front and center in the wrestling world heading into WrestleMania. So, um, And this Nitro is, is, is proof of that as well. As we see in the next match here with Chavo Guerrero being accompanied by his uncle Eddie Guerrero. Uh, for the next match. Um, halfway down the, the the platform, over the pool, Eddie stops Chavo and gives him an airbrush t-shirt that says, Eddie is his favorite wrestler. Typical beach airbrush t-shirt special. I thought it was kind of funny uh, that he made Chavo wear it. Um, and then he reminds Chavo that he has to live up to his word and wear the shirt per the agreement from their prior match that took place on an episode of Nitro or Thunder. I don't recall which one. 
Um, Chavo would reluctantly put the shirt on as he enters the ring, and he's out to face WCW TV champion Booker T. Um, Chavo wears the shirt the entire match. Booker's really over with the crowd. We got we're getting early signs of his greatness here as a singles performer. In '98, I didn't realize it, but it's I wouldn't say I didn't totally realize it, but I realized they were doing something more with him on a singles level. But I just didn't realize how good he was at that time and how popular he was at that time. Hence the reason why he was in the position he was in. Um, some Really, in my opinion, some of his best work began during this era. I mean, the matches I talked about earlier. He had a great match with Rick Martel, who was north of 50 at that time um, in WCW. Perry Saturn from The Flock. Two back-to-back matches at Super Brawl. Over 30 minutes. Opening the show. Really good stuff. Eventually... He would do some great work with Chris Benoit in their best of seven series, excuse me, for the TV title. So we're starting to see Booker T as a singles performer really build his body of work. Um, Now we get to see in this match as well, Chavo kind of embracing some of his Uncle Eddie's cheating tactics, despite some of the issues he has with him on screen, based on the fact that he's not gotten the best of Booker T in this match. So he's now getting frustrated and Maybe he is taking on some of Uncle Eddie's characteristics um, that, you know, resemble the family. Uh, he puts up a good fight with Booker in this match. Uh, Booker T hits uh, a missile drop kick on the Chavo off the top rope for the victory. This is a good match overall. Uh, progressed the story of Chavo being abused by his Uncle Eddie. It also progressed Booker T's run as a, as a, as a singles champ. Uh, WCW TV champ, I should say. Um Next match here, we get Reese from the Flock taking on Diamond Dallas Page for the United States Championship. Page, as always, very popular character amongst the Spring Break crowd. Um, Reese would pretty much toss Page around, slamming him around, doing a lot of big man stuff, a lot of chokes. Um, nothing flashy here. Page played the underdog champ really well in this match. Uh, Reese would send Page into the ropes. Page counters and nails him with the diamond cutter and crawls over for the cover and the victory. The match was nothing to write home about, but it served its purpose as it continued the rivalry with Page and Raven heading into their upcoming pay-per-view match. Page, always exciting in his matches, especially with different ways he found to to execute the diamond cutter. And then against a guy that's probably twice or three times his size, uh, it was a pretty cool setup there. So, um, but... Bell to bell, nothing special. Our next match would see Chris Jericho and Juventud Guerrero for the Cruiserweight Championship. Uh, Jericho would uh, cut a pre-match promo in the ring bragging about what he's done to Rey Mysterio injuring his knee, unmasking Juventud Guerrero at Super Bowl, and then humiliating Dean Malenko at the pay-per-view last night. Um, He's continuing his build as a mid-card heel and one of the better acts at WCW at the time. I mean... I said it before, there's a reason why he was in the position he was in, and he did a great job of it. Uh, Chris Jericho was really starting to come into his own as well. And as much as 25 years ago, fans wanted to see more for guys like Jericho and Benoit and, 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 and Booker T, maybe they just weren't ready yet. But you could see that they were going to be bigger stars down the line. Um, WCW might not have felt that way right away, but... Jericho was really standing out amongst everyone else in this time period in WCW. Um, 
This is a short match, but it was fun overall between these two. We got a few near-fall attempts um, by Hoovy almost beating Jericho. Um, a, a Hoovy driver onto Jericho, unsuccessful, uh, un- unsuccessful victory, I should say, uh, for Hoovy at, at, at two. Um, kicking out at two, I should say. I'm stumbling on my words here. Don't know why, as I got notes in front of me. I don't know the, why I'm doing that, but whatever. Jericho would then grab the two, cruiserweight title and nail Hooven to get himself disqualified. And then he applies the Texas Cloverleaf, which is Dean Malenko's move, on Hooventude Guerrero, naming it, or renaming it, the Jericho Maple Leaf. Like I said, fun match overall. It was short, but this was designed to further Jericho as this like cruiserweight bully of sorts and add another notch on his belt. Um, which would eventually further the angle with Dean Malenko down the line. Um, our next segment sees Hall and Nash make their way out in Hawaiian shorts, uh, Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops as they call out the Giant. And I'll be honest with you, both guys, I said it earlier, both guys look pretty inebriated. In this segment, both of them look shit-faced, okay? And I know about being shit-faced years and years ago, but it's actually funny. Kevin Nash once told a story, um, on a shoot interview that I watched regarding this this segment. And him and Scott had been on like this double secret probation. This is according to Nash with Eric Bischoff and management because they got caught drinking in the building uh, at a couple of these nitros. So they, they drive down to Panama City Beach because they're both Florida natives and they stop by this surf shop and buy like Hawaiian shirts and flip flops and um, board shorts. And they, they, they get to nitro and they, they, they buy a couple cases of beer. And they get to Nitro, and um, they see Bischoff. And Bischoff kind of sees them with these cases of beer, so they make a beeline to Hogan's trailer because Nash's theory was if we can get a beer in Hogan's hand, he ain't going to yell at Hogan with all of them drinking together. So they get into Nash's, Hogan's trailer. Hogan and Savage are in there. They both hand them beers. They crack them open. Bischoff walks in, has this really disgruntled look on his face towards Hall and Nash, but because they're drinking with Hogan, all is right with the world. At uh, one point, Nash even uh, uh, discloses that management was upset that they showed up to Nitro wearing board shorts and flip-flops. And they were like, what's with the Hawaiian gear? And Hall and Nash are both like, hey, dude, it's spring break. I'm just going along with the theme here. Um, which made them stand out when they were in that ring for that NWO promo, I must say. Aside from the fact that they both looked like they were shit-faced. Anyhow... Um, there's at one point in this segment where they call out the giant and Hall, or no, Nash gets on the mic. Hall does a survey. He's pandering to the crowd. Um, then Nash tells the guys to be nice to the fat girls because they need some love to spring break. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's 2023. We we don't fat shame, but I just thought that line was kind of funny. It's for It was for the time period. Uh, anyhow, I hope I don't get canceled. Uh, anyhow, um, Nash would then address the match with the Giant from last night's pay-per-view. Uh, he would call out the Giant, and then Hall gets on the microphone and tells the Giant, that's your cue, you big dummy. It's your music. Or something to that effect. And you could tell that that wasn't really something that was planned or rehearsed, I should say, that line. Um, it was just Hall and Nash kind of having some fun here. Giant would arrive as he stalks the outsiders on the, out, um, on the outside the ringside area. Um, Nash then tells the Giant he's the 1998 Cannonball Champion of Spring Break and jumps into the pool. Now, going back to the shoot interview, Nash recalls doing this Cannonball. And 
Bischoff is kind of over by the pool area. And he tells Nash, he goes, you guys are drunk. You should be suspended, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm going to have to take action here. And so Nash is in the pool as Bischoff is berating him like a parent outside of the pool. Now, this is not all caught on camera, okay? And up top on the deck, somebody drops a drink and from the top, and Nash catches it, doesn't spill it, takes a sip, and looks at Bischoff and says, do I look drunk to you? And Bischoff storms off. And... That was also the same night, I believe, where they had convinced Scott Hall that he had to go to rehab for the second or third time at some point. This is what Nash disclosed in, in, the, um, in the shoot interview. But anyhow, in the segment, Nash does the cannonball off the pool, um, into the pool. Then Giant stalks Hall around the ringside, manages to catch him. He teases, tossing him into the water. The crowd chants, telling him to do it. Giant power press slams Hall into the water, and Hall sells it like he's a fish out of water. I thought it was a fun segment. Um Furthering along the the angle between the outsiders and the giant, um, Hall sold it pretty well as a, as a you know a slimy heel, you know looking like he can't swim in the pool. I thought it was pretty funny. Um, now we get our main event here, as it's Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man Randy Savage taking on Sting and Lex Luger. Hogan and Savage enter the arena together, but still not entirely on the same page. We're kind of seeing some tension still between the two. Hogan would then eventually throw his t-shirt at Randy Savage, and then Bischoff tries to play referee between the two as, once again, the tension's building. Sting's music plays as we see Luger enter by himself down the ramp. Um, Bischoff then grabs the mic to gloat that, that Sting is not going to show up. But, however, we get a shot of a helicopter with Sting inside of it who repels from the helicopter into the ring. The wind is blowing everywhere from the chopper. Bischoff is selling the effects of the wind and like he's going to fall into the pool. It's actually kind of funny. Um, and pretty cool visual, too, with Sting repelling from the helicopter, which was something that was kind of foreshadowed in the first segment when Bischoff had told Sting that there's nowhere for you to hide. You can't come down from the ceiling. Well, he won up your pal. He came down from a helicopter, one of the pretty cooler entrances and fitting for that environment being outdoors um thought it was kind of fun um the commentary team i will say they did a great job all night on this broadcast hyping up the match and the story behind how this match was made was it a good idea for bischoff to sign the match are these two really still on the same page meaning hogan and savage um the match would kick off as savage nails hogan while sting is rappelling down from the helicopter Hogan would then attack Macho Man from behind on the floor as the Disciple, who was not known at that time as the Disciple, is standing in front of Savage. Sting then kicks things off, taking the advantage over Randy Savage, trying to get revenge from Savage turning on him the night before. While Hogan is just yelling at Macho, berating him that he's not doing a good job in this match. Um, Once again, more NWO turmoil at the forefront of this matchup. Babyface is really dominated with, uh, on Durandy Savage while Hogan's just watching on. He eventually gets tagged in by Savage, but Hogan walks out on him. Macho Man follows to attack Hogan, sending him into the ring with Luger waiting. The finish comes when the Disciple enters and attacks Luger, causing a disqualification. The NWO arrive as Luger and Sting fight off the troops, while Hogan and Savage are on the outside fighting at the ringside area as the show goes off the air. All right. Uh, this was a fun show to watch. Like I said, the spring at the spring break atmosphere it made it look cool. Um, the, the the ring in the pool, 
There was some good storyline progression, especially with the NWO story, Jericho's story, Booker T as a singles performer, the tension with Eddie and Chavo, um, the Hall and Nash giant thing. So there was some good storyline progression in 1998, especially on this episode of Spring Break. I thought it was fun. You guys go check it out. March 16th, 1998 edition of Monday Nitro from Club La Vila in Panama City Beach, Florida. And that does it for this recap here of this Nitro Spring Break um, here on Kicking Out of Two. Thank you all for pressing play, hitting download. Uh, next week, the redo, the do-over, I should say, of WrestleMania 9 with Kobe and myself. Find out which one of our storyline paths, trajectories to WrestleMania 9 in 1993 is the better one. Was it Kobe's? Was it myself? You be the judge. And then the following week, WrestleMania what-ifs and urban legends get discussed as Justin joins me to discuss some of the more infamous and not-so-infamous WrestleMania urban legends over the years. Ted DiBiase leaving WrestleMania 4 as the WWF champ. Hollywood Hogan invading WrestleMania 14 in 1998. Brock Lesnar heading into WrestleMania 19 as the defending WWF champion. Oh, what about this one? Scott Steiner in the main event of WrestleMania 9? Check it out in two weeks. And also later that weekend, heading into WrestleMania weekend, a bonus show, Dennis is going to redo uh, a watch-along a watch along of his choosing of several WrestleMania matches on the randomizer wheel. Randy Savage, Ted DiBiase, Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, Shawn Michaels, Hollywood Hogan and Mr. McMahon, um, Edge and The Undertaker. So many great matches from 1988, 1998, 2003, and 2008 that is going to be on the WrestleMania kicking out a two randomizer wheel. But it's going to be dealer's choice, so Dennis will get to choose. No wheels being spun, so he's going to have to live with it. But it's his redo, and uh, it's time that we uh, put this one down officially for the three count. And we'll see you all next 